Well, welcome to what's going to be a slightly different version of the Weekend Sports Cars this week. As always, with thanks to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. We've tried this week, a uh, very busy week for me at Spa-Francorchamps with the FIWC uh, prologue, followed by race weekend, and we're into that now as I record this from my sumptuous hotel suite, he said with his tongue firmly in his cheek. Um, but uh, we are struggling to get my calendar, my uh, time frames together with Marshall, with his family commitments uh, this week, which are incredibly important. So we made a quick decision with the list of questions. How can we put this? Stacked pretty heavily on the Wekaslam's Elms Echo front, as you might expect this week, uh, that you're going to be hearing a lot more of my voice than Marshall Pruitt's this week. Uh, I'm going to sit here and effectively question myself uh, on the weekend sports cards. So with that indulgence from you, our fantastic loyal listeners, and still a growing band with still some new uh, names popping up on the questions list, we'll get straight into it. And it is going to be almost entirely Wek Aslam's Elms Echo this week with a couple of general, a couple of fun I hope to get uh, chucked in before I finally slump comatose onto my keyboard here. And we're going to kick it off with uh, Cody Oakwood, who says, how did we get here? This is all about the Le Mans hypercar. He says, pace fiasco. And so I should explain where we are. We've had two days of testing at the Spa-Francorchamps circuit with the first of the new hypercar class, the two Toyota Groots, the GR010 hybrid, and the single grandfathered LMP1 Alpine A480 against a bevy of uh, LMP2s and quickest time in the prologue went to an LMP2 and the three of the four track sessions also were topped by uh, LMP2s and more than one uh, LMP2 at that uh, single session at the end of the day the f- uh, second day topped with a quali run uh, a quali uh, simulation run for the more reliable of the two Toyotas one of the two uh, showing a lack of reliability brand new car um, so is it a fiasco? The straight and honest answer is we don't know. Cody says uh, LMH running the same tyres as LMP2. No, they're not. Uh, it's uh, it's a simple question, he says, which he assumed as a complicated answer. How did we get here? It does have a complicated answer. It starts with the decision, uh, the correct decision, that uh, the LMP1 era had come to a conclusion. Um, it's complicated by a combination of uh, factors, including the prevailing economic position throughout the kind of the, the protracted genesis, the, the, the kind of the birthing pains, if you like, of the Le Mans hypercar um, process. Uh, it's, com- it's, com- it's impacted as well by some seismic shifts within the automotive industry where, you know, um, low emissions or no emission vehicles um, have become not just uh, a commercial uh, matter, but a political matter as well globally, which means that uh, looking for kind of high-spend conventional uh, motorsport programs, that's become just fundamentally less likely um, in um, in the last few years. That's meant as well that people, the, the teams, the manufacturers involved in these programs are looking for more cost-effective solutions. Uh, hypercar was designed to do that. Um, it didn't quite get where I think uh, they were looking 
to get it to. We struggled through a process where it didn't garner the kind of attention that the ACO were clearly hoping it would. And then along comes Aston Martin and says, we'd like to bring our Valkyrie. We'd like the the regulations to accommodate that. And probably, Cody, this is where the most critical part of the pathway towards where we've got to today came in, because in doing that, um, the cars became heavier. It's as simple as that. Uh, obviously, the Aston Martin Valkyrie uh, hypercar program failed, faltered uh, with the, the uh, how can we put this, economic woes that Aston Martin Lagonda uh, hit around that time. But what we were left with then was a a class that had effectively one major OEM taker, uh, that being Toyota, uh, by collar sitting there in the background, Jim Glickenhouse ready to come with um, his 007 uh, uh, hypercar. And, of course, then pretty late in the day, the announcement that Signatech Alpine, now the Alpine Endurance team, will be bringing a uh, grandfathered LMP1 car. It, it's, aside from everything else, an interesting moment. It's an interesting moment on a number of counts. Um, we don't yet know what the real pace of those hypercars are. I will tell you I remain suspicious that we've seen close to what they're capable of. I do believe that um, Toyota have had some significant teething problems with at least one of their cars. It looks like there were some issues today with the other. Uh, so whether or not we'll see just exactly where they are uh, this weekend remains to be seen. I hope we do, and I hope it sorts itself out. I hope we all go skipping away from Spa-Francorchamps as happy people, all friends again. But right now, um, it's a quite edgy atmosphere uh, between the Toyota camp, the Alpine camp, who want something different from Toyota, we'll come to that in a moment, and very specifically, a quite large group of LMP2 teams who have rather had enough of adjustments being thrown their way. Every sign is, and those of you that have read the stories on Racer and, and Delhi Sports Car, is that the organisers, uh, the ACO and the FIA, have basically drawn their line in the sand and have said, these are the rules, this is what you're going to have to play with. I think that's correct and brave. And I think that does show a level of leadership which is going to be required in an environment where we're going to get an increasing number of factories involved, not just with LMH, but obviously coming further on. And great to see some more meat on the bones from Audi today of the LMDH programs that are going to be coming on stream from about 2023. Michael O'Keefe says, do you think we'll be in awe of the hypercar and its maiden voyage, or will we remember this race as nothing less than disaster for the WC and the hypercar brand? Do you think John Doonan, the manufacturers that are going with LMDH, will be taking copious notes on this race? First things first, it is the start of a brand new era. Um, it should not be judged on what we've seen over the last two days, or indeed what we might see over the next two days. There are lessons that are going to be learned by all concerned. And yes, it's all going to get very tribal about whether LMH is a success or otherwise, and whether we should have gone with LMDH at WC in the first place, etc., 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 you know what? It's the wrong debate. We are where we are right now. And there are more Le Mans hypercars coming uh, from Peugeot and from Ferrari. And I've zero doubts that whatever it takes to make that side of things work will happen. There will be some growing 
pains. That's always assuming, by the way, that we don't get to Sunday and think, I don't know what we're all worried about. Uh, and we've got, at the moment, a whole lot of we don't know. I'll add this into the mix. It is perfectly fair to say that on single lap run, um, some of some of the LMP2s were quicker, marginally in most cases, than the ultimate pace of the LMH cars. It's equally true to say that if you look at the lap-by-lap uh, patterns, that the LMH cars were capable or rather were more capable of sustaining their pace over multi-lap runs than perhaps the LMP2s were. Remember, the LMP2s with their reduced power are going to find it significantly more difficult when they hit traffic. And we've got quite a large contingent of GTE AMs, for instance, as well as slower LMP2s uh, into the mix. So it's not as simple as one lap pace. We should also remind ourselves that all the numbers that have been put out into the public domain about target times for LNH uh, at Le Mans with LMP2 are all based not on single lap testing pace, but on race pace. Uh, interesting indeed to see the very first flying lap of the Alpine in the first free practice session that I've just come from this evening was quicker than anything we'd seen from either Toyota uh, over the two days of testing. We're not there yet <clears throat> to make any conclusions and we haven't even started to talk about the potential politics involved here uh, between manufacturers and the governing bodies the rule makers so let's hold it and that's it's almost like we it, it, we need a kind of a top up to this podcast on sunday and it might well be that we decide to do something along those lines depending on what we see on saturday Andrew Miller asks, what is it? That's a terrible, cynical, cynical question here, Andrew. How will the FIA make sure an LMH wins? I don't know that, I don't know that an LMH will win. Um, I'm pretty certain that Toyota don't know if an LMH will win. We could have um, weather coming in um, over the weekend. We had some rain here overnight after sunshine, but quite cold conditions for the first two days. Uh, and we've had a little bit of rain today at Spa. Remember... That's a point at which, whatever the pace, the traction, the way in which that's developed by the Toyota does come into play with the effective part-time four-wheel drive um, with the hybrid system delivering through the front axle. So we don't yet know how that's going to play out. Why? Because we haven't seen the car run in those conditions. Uh, Toyota have had some rain testing, I believe, with the car. We'll have better data. Um, but I don't think this is a uh, a race that's done in any way, shape or form based on lap times that are just a few tenths apart. And especially when you then remember that a large proportion of the LMP2 contingent are truly pro-am cars. Um, so we've got full pro Toyota lineups against uh, LMP2 squads that that have a slightly weaker link in very many of them. So that's another thing that's almost certain to play into this one. It's intriguing coming to the weekend. And I can't remember coming into a race weekend knowing as little as we do about what the potential shape of the the, of the top end of that grid might be. Uh, who's that? John D says, 
Let's believe Toyota are at least close to their real pace. How did the ACO FIA get the target performance window so wrong and not see it coming? Saying LMH was targeting a 3.30 at Le Mans was always putting it right in the middle of the P2 battle. 3.30 is race pace. Um, LMH race pace. Uh, not an ultimate qualifying lap. I would expect them to be significantly under that. Probably at something like previous P2 pace um, for qualifying. Uh, so in terms of the kind of the pace we've seen from LMP2 so far, that's when these guys have got the hammer down and they are indeed pipping the LMH at that point. And some might say, why shouldn't they uh, in, in certain conditions? Why shouldn't they against a brand new car where the teams, the uh, Toyota team and for that matter, the Alpine team are telling us there are still things they need to understand about their package. I think any of us saying, how have they got this so wrong? Consider this, Toyota have invested a very significant amount of money into that Le Mans hypercar, knowing full well where their performance window was. They have been in the technical groups and in the discussions, which has also discussed what needs to happen with this other process, this stratification process. For those coming to this discussion new, that is the, the word that's been used to describe the gapping, if you like, between the top class and the LMP2 class. If that is where things are wrong, incorrect, you've then got to ask the next question, which is, is that just because of the way in which the LMP2 package that we've currently got with more weight, less power, and specifically with the low drag, low downforce aero kit, which makes something between a 15 and 20% difference in downforce to the Orica, for instance, uh, is that a kit that potentially could work particularly well at Spa-Francorchamps? It was a point where, uh, in what was a pretty strident series of um, statements, Pascal Vassalon, the um, technical director of Toyota, did say that was a possibility. We, they, they, he said they didn't have data to understand it. I'm not sure I quite believe that from Pascal. Um, but I think they probably do have plenty of data on that front. Um but we're still struggling to determine the difference between the pure politics and the actual concern. I don't think we're going to be in a position to judge that. Uh, and I'm not even going to say until until Sunday morning, until the data is understood, uh, that is going to be collected from the cars involved at the top end of this race. So yeah, if they are close to their, their true pace, they might be. They might well be. Could it just be that it's a problem here at Spa-Francorchamps? It could be. We've got time to wait. Uh, Daniel Summerskill, another new question. I've never heard from Daniel before. At LMD Husky, we now know it's hybrid, 2023. If the times and the spa test are to be believed, then the ACO have managed to get the BOP-ness within hypercar spot on, but stratification between LMH and LMB2 completely wrong. Find it hard to believe the maths engineering experts and the ACO have got things so wrong. What say you? Throughout all of this, and as you might well imagine, there's been a lot of conversation within the paddock community, the press room community, and, and I've tried to take a step away from it and sort of said, maybe it's easier just to say, let's forget Toyota for a minute. Let's look at the Alpine. The, the task has been to balance the Alpine against the uh, the Toyota. That's been that's the BOP task. The stratification task is to balance both of those or rather gap both of those against the LMP2. So let's look at the numbers. The Alpine in its current form 
Um, weighs 930 kilos. It's something like 100 kilos heavier than it was uh, as its base weight in LMP1. So 930 kilos. On Let's not forget what is effectively the same base chassis as the Orica 07. The Oricas, and let's we know there's a Ligier, but let's talk about the Orica because it's easier, is at 950. So 20 kilos difference. Remember those figures. 20 kilos heavier, LMP2, to the grandfathered LMP1 hypercar. Power. 536 horsepower with the double power turned down for LMP2 with the 4.2 litre Gibson. And also, uh, there's, there's other factors coming into that about the way that power can be delivered. It's getting, for instance, the gearbox, I'm being told, into an unhappy place uh, in terms of the power delivery, the power band and uh, resonance. The LP, 603 horsepower. So that's, by my maths, um, that is 67 horsepower more, 20 kilos less. The two other factors are tyres and aero. I have to believe that if the position might be that Spa-Francorchamps is a bit of an outlier and that a low downforce kit might be more effective, I think I'd be putting my money on the LMP1 spec aero kit uh, developed specifically for that, that car being more effective than the cost-capped aero kit on the Orica 07. And the final issue, and it's one where there is some balance to be drawn here, is tyres. It is spec Goodyear rubber, this, this kind of slightly compromised rubber that's been pulled together, um, incorrectly reported, including, by the way, by me and corrected by... Uh, our friends at Goodyear, not 2020 rubber, but um, it is a combination of uh, compounds that have been used since the start of the uh, the Gibson era in LMP2 around new construction. So these are new tyres for 2021, albeit with some lessons learned from what were very successful tyres in the past. So capable tyres, but tyres that are built to provide part of the performance balance against the Michelins, that it has to be said, Rebellion always struggled to switch on. But there's been a lot of running, a lot of running over the last two full days of testing with the Prologue and, of course, free practice one. Now, the Alpine going quicker than either of the Toyotas on its first flying lap, albeit only by a tenth, but then being pipped by the United LMP2 again. Um, so I'll ask the assembled listenership to consider those figures forgetting putting the territory to one side let's assume that they have managed to to balance the performance generally pretty well between the uh, two-wheel drive grandfathered lmp1 and the uh, temporary four-wheel drive uh, toyota gr 010 the Groot. let's look again then at those figures 930 kilos Hypercar, 950 kilos LMP2. 603 horsepower, hypercar, 536 horsepower, LMP2. LMP1 spec, low dra uh, drag uh, body kit. Cost capped spec, low uh, drag, low downforce body kit on the LMP2. Michelin tyres designed for the LMP1. The Goodyear tyres that have come in late uh, as the compromise for LMP2. I therefore ask the question, why is there a problem? I'll leave it at that.
And I think that's one we'll find out a lot more about. I did say, by the way, a little earlier, I'd explain the difference between the positions of um, the Toyota team and the Alpine team. And it's quite an interesting one. If you add uh, together the statements that they've made publicly, the conversations I've had with various people, it seems to me that they're asking for two different things. Uh, Pascal Vasselon made it it clear that there is little they can do economically to save weight on their car. It's a significantly more weighty car than the LMP2s and the LMP1s, but then again, it's a lot more powerful. It comes in at 1040 kilos, I think, at the moment, and something like 700 horsepower to the 536 of the LMP2s and the 600 of the LMP1. Um, So he's saying that it would be difficult and expensive to add weight. Uh, Initially said it would be impossible or rather very difficult to make the car more powerful, which leads you to believe what he's actually asking for is further restrictions on the LMP2 uh, and was trying to shy away from specifically asking, but the conclusion is that that's what he's asking for. Shift over to the garage to number 36, the Alpine car, and it's a bit different. Uh, they are making it pretty clear, as a team also running an LMP2 would, that they don't think that there should be further restrictions put on the LMP2s, which means that they're looking for their car to be either lighter or more powerful, which leads you to another problem. If we do agree, and I think most people do, that there's reasonable balancing between the two hypercars, which direction are you supposed to jump in? Toyota's direction to restrict the LMP2s or Alpine's direction to unleash uh, more potential of their uh, XLMP1 because you can't do both and retain the same kind of balance across the hypercars. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Who's next? Garen Batten. And that is a name I've not heard before. So, Garen, if you are indeed a new listener, you are more than welcome. With a very limited number of LMH cars in the WC this year, is it really that bad of a circumstance for the P2s to be at or extremely close to them on pace? Hashtag me personally, gives some depth to the front of the race until the AM drivers get in. And the P2 teams who've been beat up over the period of stratification, a bit of candy on the TV for a few rounds. Your thoughts? I, as a, a fan of sports car racing, I can't disagree with you. And I would say this, it's about half the teams in this, uh, is it 14 car and P2 grid that have got bronze ranked drivers. But the other half have got silver ranked drivers and very few of those are slow. Uh, so I don't think it's quite a, as much as a pushover as perhaps um, the LMH teams would like it to be uh, across a kind of pro-am um, field. It's, we're at this odd moment with this new LMP2 pro-am uh, class, the class for any team that's got at least one bronze driver, a class which I happen to believe is a misnomer. I think it should be LMP2-am uh, because LMP2 by its very nature is pro-am already. But hey, we are where we are. Um, I don't think it's the bad thing. Uh, Pascal Vazelon has made it very, very clear that he does believe it's a bad thing, as have the other members of the senior management of Toyota. And well, they might being asked to bring, uh, you know, investment to a new class. Uh, it is a whole lot of unknowns right now. Uh, but do I think it's a bad thing that we might get close competition between them at the front of the field that they might have to fight for it? No, I don't. It's the straight answer. Um, it's, it's, if you like, it's a microcosm of what we're all hoping we're going to see in 2023 with Peugeot on board, with Ferrari on board, with, I hope, Jim Glickenhaus and his, his, uh, crazy gang on board. And then with the LMDH, 
uh, crews coming along from Porsche, from Audi, you know, from we expect General Motors, uh, later on from Lamborghini, from Bentley, from Acura, from Honda, uh, and more. And we will be talking a bit more about who else might be coming in the very near future uh, publicly uh, on that front. So, no, I don't think it's a bad thing to have close competition for some or all of the race. There are balancing factors, including how long you can run on fuel. Obviously, the LMP2s have got less less power. They will go slightly longer on fuel than they previously would. How long that takes to get the fuel on board the car. We've seen that happen before with the balancing processes. Uh, and then, yes, you're absolutely right, Garen, the, uh, the driver squads that are going to be deployed there. But uh, will it give some very talented drivers their, their time in the sun? I hope it does. And I hope actually kind of common sense, cool heads and, you know, a due process actually do prevail. And what we get is a very good race this Saturday and on many Sundays to follow in the WC. Who's next? Possible solution, says Jose Tapia. It was suggested in a Reddit thread, always a place for recent debate, by the way, to reduce fuel capacity size of the P2s to keep, at least keep them away from LMHs through strategy. Would this work or not work? Lots of things could work. You have to ask yourself just how much can you throw at a single class um, before actually what you start to do is to damage their customer base. I can tell you there are a number of drivers in LMP2 or important parts of the funding process that are none too happy with uh, the scope, but in particular the timing of the changes that were made to stratify the LMP2s. I think I agree with the general premise of the on-the-record public statements we've heard from the technical um, brains behind the process and also off-the-record comments we've heard from some of the if you like more leadership and political side of the uh, of the process, that they not minded to mess with LMP2 any further, and I think that's correct. I think if there is a correction points to be made, they need to be done calmly. They need to be done with the proper data in hand, and not always listening to the loudest voice in the room. Sometimes you do have to listen to the loudest voice in the room. In this case, I don't think we do. It's one race. Would Toyota, in any circumstances, for instance, be prepared to take the embarrassment, if you want to put it that way, of not winning a single race in order to put themselves in a stronger position for the Le Mans 24 hours in August? 100% they would. 100% they would do that. You know, would they be actively encouraged us, uh, us not to write a story, negative story about hypercar? Uh, should an LMP2 uh, uh, car win the race? It's going to be an interesting moment, isn't it? I think we might see some interesting statements should that actually come to pass. But the key thing isn't going to happen uh, on track. It isn't going to happen in the commentary that you'll hear from Martin Haven, from Alan McNish, from myself. It isn't going to happen in any uh, press release in the immediate aftermath of the race. It's going to happen when the data is analysed. And I think that's been the most important statement that's been made so far this week at Spa-Francorchamps. It's not about not affecting the, or not uh, playing with the LMP2 side of things. It's putting the line in the sand and saying, we've said from the very start, the data that we will consider uh, for the process is going to be the data we collect from the cars in race conditions. And that means two things. It means conclusions won't be made until after that data has been analysed and understood. 
And it also means that there is a very strong likelihood that we will not see uh, any kind of performance balance or rather balance of, uh, balance of performance changes happening within a racing weekend. I'll put aside at the moment, particularly uh, in the first year Le Mans, I, I, I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouth, but my guess would be, you know, that's somewhere where the, there are lessons that will need to be learned, particularly because we've got a shortened uh, process between test day and the race that in previous years. But it was made very clear the data that will be used is race data. That will be used to determine the balance of performance for the next race. And as things, as, as time moves on, of course, there will be a greater body of data available to the people making those determinations. And I think that is a very good statement to make. And it kind of cools down some of the inevitable BOP game playing that we are all very familiar with uh, that's that's been around their sports since balance of performance became you know a regular part of the the lexicon of sports car and endurance racing what's next ryan comfort says hi ryan uh so is this simple sandbagging or are we looking at the potential of an outright lmp2 win at spa it's weird times chaps it is but here's the thing i don't know i've watched every lap of the last Three days of track action, Monday, Tuesday, and now today. Um, I've not been able to anal analyse all the data. I've looked at the, the lap times. I've looked at the sector times. There's some weirdness that occurs to me, but I've heard a variety of explanations as to why the lap times are generated in the way they are. I don't know. I've spoken to some of the technical guys behind this, so at the moment, pretty constrained in what they can tell us. They don't know, is a straight answer. Uh, we are tending to hear that the hypercars are broadly where they expect them to be. Um, does that indicate that the LMP2 cars are quicker than people expected them to be? They might be. But again, going back to an earlier answer, it could be that that's an outlier and it could be that that's performance that is not repeatable over a full stint by those cars. To generate those lap times, they've needed clear air and a clear lap, and they're not going to get that on a racetrack with 34 cars. Uh, of the standard that we've actually got. What's next? Interesting one here. Daniel Summerskill, again. Hi, Dan. Do you think there are elements of the sports car media, as well as teams and other classes, who would like to see hypercar concept fail? Hashtag me personally, some of the comments I've seen seem to indicate that, which is sad. Ooh, that's, a, that's a tricky one. I do know exactly what you're talking about, so let me say this. Am I aware there's been a degree of tribalism? Yes, 100%. There have been cheerleaders for uh, a number of different solutions within Hypercar, within LM, uh, LMH, within DPI going back to the day. Uh, there have been cheerleaders for all of that. Could decisions have been made differently at previous times? Of course they could, but they weren't. We are, uh, as the man says, where we are. Um do I think that much of that is going on in the paddock? I, I genuinely don't. Uh, and there's a pretty good reason for that, which is a pretty large contingent of the, uh, the, the principal teams we've got in the affected audience here, which is Le Mans Hypercar and LMP2. We've got a lot of ambitious LMP2 teams. We've got a lot of very effective LMP2 teams. I mean, effective in terms of their team performance and pretty effective commercially. And there are few of the teams which most of us listening to this show 
could name, if asked to name, five or six LMP2 teams that have not got ambitions to attract either a factory, um, a semi-factory, or uh, their own kind of private efforts in hypercar. Principally, it has to be said through LMDH because that's the more affordable side of things, uh, the way things are planned at the moment. But that's where they want to be. So they would certainly not, at this stage of the game, be actively working against hypercar. They're certainly working at the moment in the interest of their own class, their own team, their own customers, very actively working, making it very clear how very annoyed they would be if there was any other uh, further substantial changes. But do I think that's happening in the paddock? I really don't. Do I think it's happening elsewhere? I think there are those that potentially would would find a proven failure in the process. Um, somewhat less distressing than those of us that actually care about the future of the sport. I think there are possibly those out there that for them, perhaps a previous feeling that a wrong decision was taken to be proved right is perhaps at times in moments a little too important. And I find that sad because this is a sport and it's a business that we're all invested in, whether or not it's in terms of our financial investment in it, our personal investment in it, certainly our passion in it. I don't believe there's anybody in that uh, in that media core anywhere in the world that isn't passionate about uh, what we do to some degree or other. Uh, and I think anybody that would be looking for failure as a thing to mark with, I told you so, I think that's wrongheaded and I think that's, Pretty sad if that's the case and if that's out there. I'm not hearing a lot of it in the room I'm in this week. Let's put it that way. What's next? Right to another. Another R regular, say low right to another, my Swiss friend. Is the non-change of the prototype class stratification, the ACO's way of insisting they're right and physics got it wrong. I I I understand the point, but again. I think we've got a lot to learn from the way these cars race rather than the way these cars lap. You know, are the moves that you would make in a race that you wouldn't make in testing that 100% are? And as we saw from the prologue, there's a number of moves that were made that ended dramatically that uh, perhaps with the benefit of, uh, you know, of hindsight wouldn't have been made. Race Racing is not testing. We've seen it time and time again that people can be surprised by what you get when you get into real racing conditions. You know, with a track that's either rubbering in or a track that's degrading or with changing weather or whatever it is, you know, that's part of the fascination of it. I, I sat and did a TV interview for a documentary that will be coming out later this year, earlier today. And one of the questions was, why is endurance racing such a challenge? And it's all those things and more. It is literally, as anybody that watches or listens to, endurance racing regularly knows literally anything can happen when you have four or in this case five races this weekend happening on the same piece of very challenging racetrack at the same time everybody is racing something whether or not it's the car in front the car behind or just the clock everybody is racing and when those sorts of uh, those sorts of strategies and emotions and pressures come into play there are a gazillion and one different combinations and that's before you get to you know what my great mate 
Marshall Prewitt describes as the Cartoon Anvil comes into play, and the the really uh, left field stuff comes into play as well. Doug Bonham, how many trailers are parked up next to the tire trucks to supply Toyota and Alpine with their sandbags? Doug's made his mind up as to what's going on. Reserving judgment for qualifying of the race, which has not arrived as yet. But uh, what say you with the eyes and ears in the paddock? I'm genuinely not sure. Uh, do I think that we've got teams that are struggling? I do think we've got teams that are struggling. It's clear that Toyota were struggling with reliability on one of their two cars. Um, I am suspicious about the, the, the gap in sector times and sector two something like two seconds difference between a fast LMP2 and a fast uh, hypercar. I'm suspicious about that, but equally I've spoken to people who follow those hypercars and do say they do look as if they're struggling uh, with grip, uh, you know, with the package they've got through the twisty technical parts of Spa-Francorchamps. Will we find out this weekend? Well, if, if anybody wants to kind of point the finger at Toyota and say they're really playing politics, could they decide to burn a race and try to make a point that way? They could. But I'd like to think that with the torque meters we've actually got uh, on the cars now to assist the, or to facilitate rather, the uh, BOP process, that would be reasonably visible to the team that's responsible for making sure this process works. So will we know by Sunday? I hope we do. I hope it's neat and tidy and I hope whatever the result is, that uh, everybody sees it as being a fair one. I'm not expecting any political shenanigans between now and then. And as I say, let's hope that for next week's uh, Week in Sports Cars podcast, we can talk, be talking about a real result and not you know, an area where I, Sean, Kevin, is not really sure exactly where things stand. Doug, rather. Because Kevin next. Kevin says he's hoping the show is recorded before the Spa Six Hours. It is. Uh, what are our thoughts, insights into the hypercar teams and uh, sandbagging? He's asking the same question. <sighs> Do I think they're showing what they've got? I don't. I, I don't see what's in it for them to show what they've got. I don't see why they would be going out there. Um, you know, to a degree, you could actually argue that you know what have they suffered so far? A bit of unreliability and a few headlines that are saying it's quite embarrassing. Um, there is a whole lot of the world that doesn't care about what's happened in the last two, three, four days here. And um, there might be a slightly larger proportion of people who care about what happens on Saturday. Remember, it's a Saturday race uh, here at Spa. But um, it's a longer game. This is not a one-year project for Toyota. Um, they are looking towards the Le Mans 24 Hours this year and the WEC and the WC next year and the Le Mans 24 Hours next year and thinking about where they are in terms of of where they believe Peugeot's performance might be, and then looking towards Ferrari and the sure and certain knowledge that when Ferrari arrive and Audi and Porsche, the political game will get a whole lot hotter. That's what they're preparing for. They're trying to kind of feather the nest, if you like, make sure that they've got their uh, concept nailed in, that they can uh, return on their investment in, in both developing this, designing this car and developing this car before the major competition is arriving. Do I think they relish the competition? I genuinely think they do. Toyota Kazoo Racing are sportsmen. There's no doubt about it. They are businessmen as well, of course, and they're engineers as well. They're proud people. Um, but they showed a huge amount of pride in uh, through a period of time where 
you could have argued they didn't need to make the TSO 50 better. They constantly did. They constantly developed that package to try to maneuver around ever-shifting sands of process designed to make it slower. Uh, that's the kind of standard people we're talking about here. And yes, of course, there's the political side of the equation that comes with the, the territory. I'm not going to criticise them for trying. I would have probably criticised um, rather more uh, vocally had that succeeded at this too early stage. Ryan Terpstra also asking about, uh, doesn't understand the sandbagging in the prologue. Presumably Spa and Monza, in addition to the prologue, if they're trying to ensure good beer penis for Le Mans, or speculating sandbags, have I heard some things? You hear lots of things. And, you know, you learn through process of elimination and sometimes embarrassment when you've gone down a road that someone suggested and it turns out to be completely wrong. Ultimately, the stopwatch will tell. Ultimately, the race will tell. As we've said so many times on this podcast and in other discussions, you know, with some of you in groups and some of you personally, um, is you've got to beat the race. And we don't know what the race is going to chuck at us yet. We don't know whether or not that's going to throw uh, bad weather. We don't know whether or not that's going to throw incident. We don't know whether or not we're going to have full green running as we have before now at Spa or whether or not it's going to throw, you know, it's better than works to it. I'll start to develop my thought pattern on this when I've seen what we've actually got in race conditions. Testing is not racing. Uh, Daniel again, Daniel Summers Gill again says, would having a closed test to the prologue as the prologue without timing information being released in the public domain prevent the cloak and dagger tactics seemingly used by some teams from occurring? It might help it. I think that would be disappointing. Um, I think there's other questions about the prologue. Uh, some of which come a little bit later, so I'll steer away from that. Um, but, you know, we're in an era where people appreciate the opportunity to have more openness. If people want to use that for whatever purpose, that's fine. In, in this instance, uh, there's a big part of me, having sat now in a Zoom conference with, uh, in our case, uh, we're speaking to Pascal Vassalon, there were some concerns about what might happen in relation to some strident remarks, not just from Pascal, but from other senior members of the Toyota management, and, by the way, from comments from the Alpine team to other media organisations. There were some concerns about what might happen and what where that might leave us moving forward. And a lot of those concerns were allayed when we sat down with Marek from the FIA and Thierry Bouvet from the ACO, and they did what I believe they had to do and should do, which is to to explain, here is the process that's been developed over this period of time with the direct involvement of the manufacturers. This is the level of confidence we have in that process. We are perfectly happy with what we're seeing in terms of the performance of these cars, and here is the way the process will work forward. And then, very specifically, we are not going to be making any changes this side of the race. I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. You determine the process, you're confident in the process, that's been validated uh, between the organisations involved in developing that process and in consultation with the manufacturers directly affected by it, it's the wrong thing to kind of show then that you've got doubt based on non-competitive times in, you know, an, uh, albeit a public test session, but one where 
you don't actually know what strategy anybody's using, you know, the state of a tyre set. Yes, you'll be able to measure what fuel's in the tank. Yes, you'll be able to measure what's going on in terms of your torque meters and all the other logging devices you've actually got. But it's the wrong time to make a knee-jerk decision, purely because there might be the potential, the potential, not the actuality, the potential of a mildly embarrassing headline um, on Sunday morning. Andrew Baxter says, if it turns out the Toto and Alpine are sandbagging their pace, would it be fair to say their penis is a grower and not a shower? Fairly good point. Um, yeah, I, I tend to find, actually, there's probably not enough said about this, which is, we certainly the last occasion I can remember this becoming a real thing was when we saw that dramatic increase in pace between sessions at the moment with the 4GT and they'd been playing much the same game. It was clear they'd been hiding some performance and all of a sudden, oh, look, we've got a handful of seconds in our back pocket. Do I think it would be embarrassing for them? I don't think they'd be remotely embarrassed. I think we might be doing some tell-tweaking on Daily Sports Car and Racer.com and um, just about every other uh, specialist outlet. Do I think Toyota care about that? No. No. I think this is part of the business of motorsport. It is the way that balance of performance works. For better or for worse, there are political and communications aspects to that process. Does it mean we like the um, process or some of the statements involved in it more than otherwise we would? I'm perfectly used to people playing politics. And generally speaking, I'm a pretty good judge of character. Um, I'm very firmly aware of all the players in this game, where they stand in terms of where they their loyalties lie, why their loyalties lie there, and what their short, medium, and long-term objectives are in doing so. And I can tell you right now, there is nobody that we've spoken to this week, whatever the result uh, is on Saturday, that I wouldn't be prepared to pick up the phone and or see them in the paddock and speak to them again um, in good order the following day. That's racing. It's as simple as that. This is part of the game now. What's next? Seamus Cunningham says, can you help take a step back and understand what problem we're solving by making the hypercar class so much slower than the old formula? Money. It's as simple as that. The, the issue with the LMP1 hybrids in particular was that the formula allowed a near vertical development process. And that led to vast amounts of money being spent in, on pretty short-term programs. And it got to the stage where, in terms of the return on that investment, once you've used up the pretty low bar for return on investment on R&D, it is a very valid point with emerging technologies, which hybrid technology certainly was, uh, you know, a decade ago or so. Once you've extinguished that uh, that um, return on investment, you're then into the visibility, if you like, the the way in which you can offer return on investment from the presence of your car in competition, the performance of your car in competition, the successes of your car in competition, and it, we simply got to a stage added with the complexity of the uh, the world economic position. And indeed, some other external factors, including Dieselgate, much as VAG would like us not to talk about Dieselgate. Dieselgate was certainly a major factor in that, that we started to lose those teams. Well, in, 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 no, in particular order, Nissan's program fell over 
because there were technical shortcomings in their concept and a lack of management confidence um, in the ability um, for them to fix it to the point where that could, in short order, provide um, a competitive car. We then lost Audi pretty directly to do with Dieselgate. They were running a diesel powertrain. No particular interest in uh, Audi and Porsche going head-to-head, both with gasoline-fueled engines. Porsche, pretty soon after that, um, no doubt really in my mind that, again, Dieselgate was a major factor in that, but there was shifting uh, priorities within VAG for some of the major brands and what they were going to do in motorsport. We've obviously seen uh, a shift by some of those brands both into and then out of Formula E. Um, that's what was going on there. Toyota then left, if you like, uh, holding the candle, and they deserve a lot of credit for sticking with that program. Uh, and that we did see, albeit with limited competition and with you know some gimmicks introduced to actually keep the competition alive, if you like, in LM, uh, LMP1 with the non-hybrid privateer cars. But Toyota sticking with the program, but Toyota using the political clout they gained from that loyalty uh, in a variety of ways, very, very effectively. But they're with us, they're part of this family, and they still deserve credit for that. They are still spending many millions of euros in bringing fabulous machinery and fabulous performance to international racetracks and should carry, I think, some admiration for that, whatever anybody thinks about what's been going on over the last few days. Yusuf, C51. Everything that's been going on with Le Mans hypercars, MP2 cars. Why have the ACO and the FI been repeatedly making the LMP2 cars slower and slower, forcing them to run the Le Mans aero package at all tracks and all rather than making the hypercars faster? It's cutting the cake in a slightly different way, isn't it? Um, there was always a known known, which was LMP2 would have to become slower to allow the reduction in pace which these cheaper cars would require against the spec that was seen for them. Principally, that's around perhaps some less exotic materials, but also remember this was to allow a formula which envisaged and still may deliver uh, cars that are far more road car-like than their uh, prototype brethren. I should say, by the way, there's a lot been written about the fact that the, um, the GR010 uh, looks too like the TSO50 that presided, uh, preceded it. It really doesn't. Uh, you know, I think the mistake that perhaps Toyota have made is putting more or less the same livery on the car, but it really does not look anything like the TSO50. And I think when people get the opportunity to come trackside and have those pit walks and you know, see those display cars that you know, sadly very many of us are not able to do at the moment, I think that may well start to get people to understand just how very different that car is from its previous its predecessor. And yes, I'll say it again, I think Toyota have made a mistake in going down the road with effectively an evolution of the same livery because it does rather disguise what is a spectacularly different car. Very different indeed. And I will tell you too, uh, I've heard far more positive responses to the look of the car from people who've had the chance to see it up close. I have. I do think it's a spectacularly different car, a very interesting car, and I look forward to somebody from Toyota when we're less busy walking me around it and explaining what we're looking at. Um, I think that is the start of something that is going to be more road relevant. And I expect that we'll see 
some interesting takes on the same rule book when we get into Peugeot and we get into Ferrari and then when we get into LMDH. Um, why have they slowed the P2 cars down to back them away from it? Why was there the second slot of changes? Because it wasn't enough. Um, there, there, was, there was little doubt, much as this is disappointing to the LMP2 teams, that, um, as I've said to a number of people over the last few days, we need a conversation. And that conversation is, we're going to have to have a conversation about just how good a car the Orica 07 is and was. Um, and forget for a moment the debate about whether or not there was an unfair advantage for Orica. The reality is they did a spectacularly good job with a, let's face it, cost cap car that is available to any of you listening, by the way, to this podcast, should you have the money to buy one. That is a car, <coughs> excuse me, that even in its current format is going to be something of the equal of an Audi R10. Alan McNish's favourite race car ever, by the way. <coughs> Therefore, not a car without capability. That's how good a car we've got. Let's have a conversation about just how good the Orica 07 is. Is is my kind of soundbite for that one. If you are listening in and fast forwarding and wondering where my colleague Marshall Pruitt is, uh, we've been struggling through the week um, with some important commitments on the family front from Marshall, uh, not uh, meshing very well with my professional commitments, both in Barcelona. A week or so ago, and here in Spa-Francorchamps. So, what you're listening to is me, Graham Goodwin, going through a very large list of questions to do with the Weck Asums uh, Elms Eco area of things in the wake of the uh, the FIWC prologue. Let's continue down. Different take on this one. Um, Carl Matthew Levine says: Is the LMP2 pace from testing genuine? If so. What's more likely? LMP2 cars slowed down more. The hyper cars get a performance boost. First things first. Do I think it's the this, the LMP2s have got nothing to sh- uh, nothing to hide from? Simple as that. We've seen the broad range of performance. We've seen a number of teams in pretty similar form at the top of the timing screens, and we've seen a number of teams with pretty similar kind of long stint length towards the middle of the uh, timing screens. So yes, I think they're. Uh, working to understand the package. <coughs> Remember, very many of these um, LMP2 teams, this will have been their first running with what they're going to have for the rest of the season. So they've got no reason to hold back. They need to understand what they've got, where they can tune that to the best advantage performance-wise in terms of the resilience of the package. Um, so, no, I don't think there's any doubt that the vast majority, if not all, of the LMP2 teams are running to the level at which they can uh, manage to get there is a straight answer. Uh, so a quick look. Jacques Bernardson says, he's enjoyed our last podcast. Thank you very much for that. His question is about Alpine. How can they be slower than the hypercar with the hypercar? There'll be two cars around Spa with more power, less weight, probably more downforce. How can Groot be slower than the LMP2 cars? Expansion, we said before, I think that's the key question. The key question for me is not about Toyota, it's about Alpine. Why is the Alpine slower? I don't get it. It's a straight answer. I've not had an explanation that I can 
really work with that that explains the the gap we've seen between that car. Alex Eichmiller, should the WC just ditch uh, LMP2 cars for LMP3 to make their lives easier and try to slow the class down and hope no one notices? Yeah, I know it's a bit of a leg pull there. I think the answer is no. They're very committed to LMP2, certainly this um, generation of LMP2. I think we'll wait and see what happens with a future LMP2 based on the LMPH uh, chassis to come. There are some doubts as to just how big that marketplace might be, and that's a doubt that's coming from the paddock as well as outside the paddock, just how many teams will remain uh, interested in uh, an LMP2 process uh, moving forward. Are there enough LMP3 teams looking to step up that will will you know leave us at a, a meaningful group that will support meaningful class numbers across the multiple championships that welcome LMP2 at the moment? I don't think we yet understand that part of the marketplace, and we're not going to unless and until the LMPH customer market matures. Uh, what's next? Interesting one here from Geronimo Lazos. After reading the informative interview with Pascal Vasselon and DSC, thank you for reading, do find it hard to believe that a factory team like Toto is so clueless about LMP2 pace, not to mention uh, if what was shown is their true speed. It says, GG's actually been there. I have. What do I think? Hashtag me personally. I think this is going to be a really entertaining race for us, surely, but maybe not for the uh, the Toda family. Um, uh, what Geronimo is talking about there is that uh, Pascal Vazelon was saying they have very limited data on the capabilities of LMP2s. Is a vast proportion of Pascal and the engineering team at Toda's uh, day job taking up uh, taken up with the performance aspects of their own car it 100% is do I believe him that he doesn't understand the performance parameters uh, of LMP2 I fundamentally don't uh, I, I hate to say it I've got a huge amount of respect for Pascal I will go on the record right now as saying he's one of the few people I've met in my professional life as that rare ability to explain the truly complex in ways that an idiot like I can understand it. And I've profited massively from his patience and his um, his, you know, his his good nature in taking us through some of these tricky concepts through what's been a technologically spectacular time. Do I, however, believe entirely that he's not fully well aware of what um, that the process was attempting to do and what they're being expected to do. I fundamentally believe that is not the whole truth. I think uh, there would have been numbers that have been banded around uh, from both sides, from the organisers and from the hypercar side, as to what they believe probably needed to be done to make the difference of stratification was being looked at. So um, with regret... Uh, Geronimo, I tend to agree with you that I simply don't believe that Tota don't have that data available and don't have an opinion or didn't express an opinion on what would have needed to be done. Uh, let's have a quick look. Right, Tim, I've asked, do FIWC have access to the full timing capabilities of the Spa track? Anything that's here, they'll have access to. It's a straight answer. So it should have many, many micro sectors. I don't think they're as concerned about the kind of the timing, as I think a lot of people seem to believe they should be, that what they're concerned with is the data collection 
process that they've got that is well established, um, well embedded with all the teams, and their data flows will be um, in full flow, if you like, uh, and certainly will be for the race to come. They seem fairly relaxed that they're on the right track. Time will tell. Chris Mock says, uh, this is the last I think we've got on this particular subject, so apologies if this wasn't why you were tuning in. The ACO said there have been lots of simulations done. The performance of hypercar is expected. It'll be interesting to publish their expected lap time for each circuit so that teams get some shame for sandbagging or for teams to show that they're in the expected window. You have to also take into account, yeah, in perfect conditions, in the right weather, with the right temperature, with everything being what it should be, you could probably get to a kind of predicting lap time reasonably easily. How often is it like that? You know, we are expecting rain at some point over the weekend. Will that affect the race? How will that affect the race? Does that give a massive advantage to Toyota? I think it probably does if we actually get rain during this race. But will that perhaps potentially expose some um, reliability for LTs in a brand new package? It might. You know, remember not that long ago, you know, uh, with Bentley at Le Mans in their first year. Uh, it just turned out the car leaked like a sieve, and that's, that destroyed the competitiveness of that package. Drivers could not see. Do I expect that to happen with the Toyota? I don't. Might it be that uh, they find that some part of the systems designed to protect vulnerable systems on the car are maybe getting some water intrusion? It might. It's happened before. So lots and lots of unknowns. It's part of why the start of any season is exciting. It's particularly why the start of this new era is exciting. And yes, we all hope. Sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. That's my phone. Uh, Siri saying it couldn't hear what I said. Um, so we'll turn that off for starters. Um, oh, well, hoped that there would be a bigger cabal of hypercars in this first race. We haven't got that. Jim Glickenhouse, we hope, will bring his achingly pretty cars as soon as possible and certainly to Le Mans. Um, and there will be others to follow. We are in that, in the business of racing at the moment, in that position where everybody's kind of hunkering down and getting through this COVID-19 fiasco and looking forward to what lies ahead. And are we all comfortable about where things stand at the moment? No, of course we're not. It is tough doing business right now. It's tough traveling now. It's tough finding time to do the things we want to do, like for this podcast, for instance, right now. But we are looking forward to what we believe, everybody I think believes, is ahead. And everybody sees things being better in a reasonably short time frame, measured in months in terms of news, weeks in some cases in terms of news, and in years in terms of the cavalry arriving. And, you know, I hope that all of us listening and contributing to this uh, can take some comfort from that and look forward to what we all hope will be a better time uh, for all of us in very many ways. Move on to some other WEC, Aslam's, Elms and Echo uh, points. Adjuris says, the idea that a hypercar is frozen for five years, the first time it rolls its tyres in anger, seems insane to me. Why not a system where participants can develop the new car for 12 months or a number of events before homologation or open control development windows over the period LMH process deprives fans of track action. For what benefit exactly? Is Glickenhaus spending less somehow? I doubt it. I see what you mean. 
I think it, it, it's it's difficult when you've got a process that is designed to accommodate um, major OEMs like Toyota, like Peugeot, challenger brands like Glickenhaus, like Bicolis. It is difficult to find a happy medium. And when you're dealing with a performance window, the reality is that the teams involved know pretty quickly whether or not their aim has been true. And beyond that, it's then a matter of fine-tuning. Do I know where the, the Glicken House is in terms of performance window? I don't. I don't. It would seem unlikely at the moment it's exceeding the performance window. Uh, and that what they're looking to do is to either fine-tune within that window or reach that window. And either is possible. But um, as to the five-year thing, I'm struggling to completely disagree with you. But I think we have to look at the era which we're coming into. It's going to be complex. We're going to be looking at cars with different technical solutions. We've already got cars that are different technical solutions. If you include the Alpine and beyond that, the Glickenhaus, and then we add in what's coming with Peugeot, what's yet to come, and we don't quite know what's yet to come with uh, the Ferrari, and then add in LMDH where the... Uh, the package, if you like, the, uh, the the propulsion package is more understood, but then you've got the challenges of just how they reach the aerodynamic um, uh, performance windows as well. And for those of you who think you've seen the Audi uh, today, that's not the Audi. That is just a, a general generic rendering. There is no bodywork design for the Audi LMDH yet. We're, we're not at that point uh, yet. Is it, it, does, it does seem counterproductive, but I understand why they've done it. Might there be an opportunity to have some kind of mid-period review or even a kind of early period review, should there be any surprises? I I would hope so. I would hope that if we find that we're, we've got teams falling into trouble, that there could be a compromise solution reached. I don't think it's in anybody's interest for people to have wasted that resource. But I understand entirely why what we're looking for here is stability that what you don't then get into is some kind of arms race. Remember, a window you open for Jim Glickenhaus to make a tweak that might make a 2% difference will be looked at as a precedent by the powerful OEMs that are to follow. It will be looked at as a precedent. And, you know, we're not just talking here about a precedent that, uh, that potentially means that there might be a bit of a row for the pages, uh, you know, of an, you know a sports car racing website, or uh, an off-color statement that supports a kind of slightly tabloidy angle on it, but real legal trouble here. There's big money involved in this, and I think actually just making the point clearly and making sure the communication about where that um, window is and how it can be achieved clearly gets you away from some of those problems. It then becomes your problem to reach that performance window in the first place in exactly the same way as it currently is for LMP3. And as an example there, there was a team, uh, rather a factory, that designed an LMP, uh, uh, sorry, LMP3, GT3, a GT3 car that didn't meet the performance window sufficiently and did it repeatedly, and that was Lexus. It took several iterations of the RCF GT3 before they got that right. Uh, James Counter says, WC Prologue seems to have caused more incidents than normal. Any idea why this was? Are we missing? Going to somewhere more forgiving like Paul Rickard? Hell yes, we are. Uh, we will start this weekend, or we have started this weekend, 
with one fewer car, the 46 Porsche, uh, with a tweaked frame, uh, chassis damage for that car. Um, and that car doesn't have a replacement immediately available. And four other cars, which are not the same cars, that started the Prologue, the 85 uh, Iron Dames, Iron Lynx Ferrari, back on track today after being replaced, the WC car replaced with the LMS car, while the WC car is taken away to be effectively rebuilt. Big front impact, that for Catleg, and she's fine. The uh, 33 Aston Martin replaced again by the LMS car, uh, after a big accident at Radion for uh, Ben Keating and fantastic work done by the TF Sport team to get that car back out from the UK. Not the work of a moment right now in a pandemic, by the way, um, and to get the car back on track in short order. And then the two Oricas that have required uh, effectively building up as new cars from a spare tub, that's the 29 a racing team Netherlands car that was involved in the incident with Cat Legs car at Bonchimont. Big, big hit for both those cars. When the standing is just one corner of the Orica was able to be taken off and reused, whereas everything else uh, was destroyed or damaged to the point where not available for further use immediately, at least. The other one being another instance up at Radion, this time on the uh, inside of Radion, and that was for Sean Galeal in the 28th Orica. They're the four. And then two cars that replied, uh, required significant repair, and a third with reasonably significant repair. Uh, the two being the 777, Aston Martin, almost identical accident to Ben Keating's, with, within 10 or 15 minutes, the D-Station car. That's had a rebuild effectively from the firewall forward. And then the 47 Chetilar uh, Ferrari, again back on track today. That was great to see. Uh, after uh, contact with the number seven Toyota, which was the mildly damaged car involved. Happily, though, no injuries. Uh, I'm sure there are a few people feeling a little bit bruised, literally and figuratively. Um, and everybody's going to be out there, with the exception of that 46 Porsche, for the start of the race. But have we learned the lesson not to come back here for a prologue again? Yes, I think we have. What caused the incidents, says Daniel Summerskill. Um, we do know some of it. Was was any of this to do with the low downforce kits, for instance, on the LMP2s? Arguably, I've, I've not spoken to Sean Kalel, um Arguably, the other incidents, uh, which was Job van Utert and Cat Leg, you could say that it's more difficult for the LMP2 cars to pass. They've not got the edge that they previously got. So arguably, you could say that that was potentially a factor. Equally a factor, Job didn't have to make the move. There's an argument to say that, you know, was it Job being over-exuberant? What did Kat turn in when she could just have lifted? You know what? We've had racing incidents. Um, they've been very expensive racing incidents. Uh, I'm not aware there was a single factor behind any of them. Uh, it's, uh, I believe... It was not a common factor between the two Aston Martin accidents, despite the fact it was at the same exact part of the racetrack, uh, almost carbon copy, that led to kind of big carbon repairs. James Counter, how useful are the days between the prologue and the race weekend, whilst everybody's presumably still on site for stiffing out stories? Well, we're all on site. I have to tell you, all day in the, the so-called down day, there was a lot of other stuff going on, um, including, I should say, and this is uh, another breaking news story today, including some 
photography for my friend and colleague Ollie Gavin um, that uh, he'll be using to launch his new endeavour. And I'm sure all of you have seen that Ollie has made the announcement today that he is officially standing down as a professional race driver after this weekend. Um, I'm truly sorry that that's not happened at an event where there are fans because I know what the response to Oliver would be. Um, known as the captain amongst the GTE Pro drivers particularly because of his outlook, his attitude, his leadership uh, in so very many ways. And I'll be sorry to see him go as a professional race driver. He's a uh, new adventure, um, expecting the first of what is going to be 12 uh, Corvette C8s road cars as the first tranche of a new uh, endeavour initially in Germany for the Oliver Gavin Driving Academy. In fact, the hotel I'm sitting in right now, Ollie's um, loner C8 Stingray is sitting outside with the branding from the Academy on board. Um, and if you get a chance to drop a line through Twitter with any memories you've got uh, for Oliver, that wasn't an easy day for him today. Uh, quite emotional, I'm sure, and not made any less emotional that you're having to do that in a Zoom conference without an audience. And um, there's a man, if ever there was, in this modern era that deserves to know that um, he's got people that, 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 that have watched and enjoyed his efforts over the last couple of, you know, two and a half decades of success. So give yourself 30 seconds if you're listening to this. Find his Twitter handle and give him your favourite memory and say thank you and say congratulations to... One of, honestly, the, the, the real modern heroes of sports car racing. Damien Peachman, would lap times around 3.25 at Le Mans have been more realistic target for hypercar? It might be that that's what they're going to make in qualifying, Damien. We don't know. We genuinely don't. Uh, Damien also asks, if Fuji doesn't happen for WEC, what are the chances of Glickenhouse continuing in the WEC? I'm not quite sure what that exactly means. I mean, I can tell you Jim Glickenhouse has made it very clear to me repeatedly that the flyway events were never part of his plan for, certainly for 2021. Very firmly focused on Le Mans and the European races that, that sit around that. And I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a big investment for a private individual. Um, if Fuji doesn't happen, I'm not going to play the game yet, but, you know, there will be a contingency plan. I'm absolutely certain of that. Contingency planning at the moment is is actually everyday stuff for anybody involved in any event right now, and for that matter, anybody planning to attend or work at those events. I'm, I do more on contingency than I do on actual planning um, for these events, and, and my actual arrangements of events are getting later and later as we navigate around the ever-shifting sands of administrative procedure. So um, we'll talk about Fuji, perhaps in... A month or two's time when we get a bit closer to the window in which those decisions can be made, Damon. No insult, but you understand the, the reason. Damon also asks, if it doesn't happen, which circuit would I like to see replace it on the WC calendar? There's lots of circuits I'd love to see replace it. It's a matter of whether or not actually they're any more practical at the moment than, uh, than Fuji would be. Uh, I hope we go to Fuji. I love going to Japan. Um, you know, in my current conversations with my wife, Trudy, um, you know, one of the things I want to see in the future as we're moving through this kind of lockdown era is I want to be spending more time with 
the lady I love uh, and on my travels. And certainly, you know, with one of the trips we make racing to Fuji or to Suzuka, if and when we get back there with um, the Asia Le Mans series, I'd love the person sitting next to me on the plane to be the person I'd like it to be. Um, but are there other places I'd like to go to as well? There are. Um, but I think very many of them are just as equally unlikely, less likely than previously, perhaps, um, than, uh, than, than uh, Fuji would be right now. Uh, final one on Wick Aslam's Elms and Echo comes from, uh, in fact, there's two more because it was, it runs into Ivan Pandev. I recall you guys talking about the Orica 07 became the dominant P2 chassis because of the way it co-evolved with the more Michelin tyre. The greater number of Orica teams had greater say over Michelin tyre development and it snowballed. With Goodyear rubber now, is there any indication that other P2 chassis might have recovered some performance? Um, no, I think is the honest answer. Uh, it's fair to say we've got the Ligier here in the WEC from ARC Bratislava and Ollie Webb, uh, who was here testing, will not be racing this week. Uh, but we'll join the team for the remainder of the season. Ollie um, has a paying gig he'd already committed to in the UK this coming weekend, and it's very honourable of him to do that. Uh, but he did put that car into the top 10 in the final session, um, and that's the top 10 overall, including the three hypercars, by the way. Uh, so that was, you know, quite some lap from Ollie. Nothing wrong with a Ligier. At GSP217, there has been consistently a kind of weakness, perhaps with the gearbox on that car. Um, but I think in capable hands, remember, that was capable of winning races. Panis Bartes ran well with that car. Uh, United Autosports won a couple of races in the LMS with that car. Um, it is perfectly capable of uh, pretty good performance. It just has not had, I don't think, over the last couple of seasons, certainly, the opportunity of having numbers of teams with full race programs in the major series to persuade the tire makers to perhaps tip a nod towards the uh, the characteristics of that car might find more favourable as they develop the tire set. So I'm afraid the answer, unfortunately, Ivan, is not. Final one, Luke Filipponi. Hello, gents. Wasn't sure you've missed something, but what's going on with the H24 prototype? Seem to remember them being in for a full season. They were clearly absent at Barcelona. Any updates on the project? Simple one. Um, so the H24, this is the um, Green GT, Total, Richard Mille, ACO uh, combination based on the ADES LMP3 chassis and with a hydrogen electric drive. Uh, the answer is the, the car was testing prior to Barcelona, had some kind of undefined uh, problem, technical problem, that could not be fixed in time for Barcelona. It is due to join uh, the fun for... Now, there's no Michelin Le Mans Cup at Red Bull Ring, if I remember rightly. Apologies, I've got that one wrong. So I think after that, we're next at Paul Ricard. But the answer is, it is due to join for the season. And I believe I'm right in saying that that means it will race at Le Mans. It will race in the um, the Road to Le Mans races. So watch out for that one. Trot through. I'm just having a quick look how long this has been. It's been an hour and 19 minutes. Let's have 15, 20 minutes of Herr General and some fun. Let's have a look. A couple here that would be more proper for Marshall Pruitt. But... Uh, 
Let's have a quick look. James Counter says, for your more ignorant listeners, please can you tell us about the car on the new graphic? The unlap sponsorship particularly amuses me, but probably should be trying not to be going over more laps down. Loves the graphic, though I think the car on fire, he says, should be a bicolis. Well, James, um, I think the one you're talking about is the latest one that MP has uh, managed to get from the excellent Roger Warwick, and that is a Lister. It is the Lister Storm LMP. Uh, that existed in a couple of different formats over its uh, reasonably short lifespan. Uh, big Chevy engine at the back. Um, very proud of it was uh, Lawrence Pierce. Uh, it was eventually uh, supposed to be replaced by a new car with the Pescarolo 01 chassis. That didn't come to pass, and uh, Lawrence and Fiona Pierce departed the international race scene after the withdrawal of the uh, the Storm LMP, a spectacular looking thing. And certainly in terms of its original kind of high fendered look, if you look at the, some pictures of that original car, 2003, 2004, you'll see some cues that you might recognize, particularly from some of the low downforce packages that emerged rather later in the LMP1 era. Um, an influential car, anti Thorby uh, design car. Uh, an influential car, I think, that that did not ever show the potential that I think a lot of us thought it might. Uh, but delighted to see it. I didn't know it was coming, and it was a, it was a very pleasant surprise uh, to see the Lister Storm uh, LMP. Gregors, uh, I always get your name terribly wrong. So it's it's Gregors uh, Piotrovich. Why have T3 Motorsport received a Lamborghini factory support instead of GRT, who also wanted to compete in DTM, but won't because of a lack of factory support? I suspect it's the word package comes into this, and that is what are T3 bringing in terms of a package? What would GRT bring in terms of package? In other words, would GRT only do it if Lamborghini paid a much larger percentage? It will be certainly that. It's what can the teams bring to the party, um, or are you expecting Lamborghini to pay a much higher percentage of the overall cost? It's got to be that. If if it's as simple as one or the other team going to make it. Um, T3 Motorsport is that will be coming to uh, DTM with the Lamborghini. And I will probably add here that has not added anything more than a fraction of a percentage point of my interest in what's going on there. It's not a prospects i'm afraid this year that is filling me with a great deal of anything other than slight foreboding that they're going to have some teams that are going to be disappointed with their experience in the dtm this year george buter what has tristan gomondy done in his racing past to still be rated as a platinum driver did some research he's never won a rangers championship cannot find a factory contract how did Rennie bender get degraded to a silver driver that fast losing gp2 even had an f1 test for renault I'm discussing driver ratings is the worst. I want to know how the, these two drivers got their ratings. I'm going to make a suggestion, George. Drop them a line and ask them. It's the straight answer. It's going to come down to a decision by the FIA grading process based on the evidence presented to them. And uh, I share your concerns about some of the decisions that have actually been made. Uh, looking at Tristan, um, I tend to agree with you. Where, where Tris has been for the last few seasons, he probably should be a gold rather than a platinum. But as any fool knows, and that's not calling you a fool, uh, once you're at a particular level, 
uh, it takes some while to get away from that level, particularly when you're closer to the top of the uh, the grading tree. As for Rene, I think it's fair to say that his results are probably good in the silver rather than uh, gold. That said, he's found some remarkable pace in LMP2. It's going to be interesting to see how that is maintained as we move into and through this current season. Uh, but yeah, driver gradings, I think, like yourself, um, I get pretty jaded by it. Let's have a quick look here. It's a quick question here from Tim Glass about the Monza SRO race and tyre failures. I'll ask the question of someone that was there. I've got a couple of them here, but I, I'll, I'll admit, Tim, I don't know the answer, so I'm not going to get into it. Um... James Counter, after controversy in Formula E with over half the cars exceeding their energy usage, not the battery capacity on Saturday. Yes, it's been interesting sharing a room with Alan McNish this week, uh, for this uh, today rather. Do you have any shocking stories of half the field running out of fuel, etc.? Sports cars are going to have to up their game with Formula E, clearly aiming for the most complicated rules crowd. Uh, yeah, it's certainly been a, a subject of much debate and not a little merriment. Uh, it's got to be said in the in the press room here. The shenanigans there. The one I will bring forward, it was an early Le Mans series race at, if I remember correctly, Istanbul, where it became obvious pretty early on in the race that the there was not enough fuel at the circuit. And I'm struggling to remember. It wasn't a race I was at, but I do remember... Um, the calls, the emails coming back from the team we did have out there saying, you're not going to believe what's happening here. But uh, do recall that they were in massive fuel trouble uh, in a Le Mans series race in Istanbul. The other one I remember was a 24H series race at Mugello. And that was a race that the previous year they'd had a fairly modest entry, 30 plus cars. And then the following year, that entry ballooned, but they'd not... Uh, increase the capacity of their fueling station. Those that follow 24H series will know they have a very specific way of fueling the cars, which involves kind of literal petrol pumps rather than um, fuel fills and pit stops. What that led to was cars queuing for fuel pumps. And in particular, as I recall, they then leader having to queue for a minute and a half before it could be fueled. Um, it's fair to say there were profuse apologies issued by Graventic and the 24H series, but it did bring an element of farce into proceedings. It's, it's certainly fair to say, James. Uh, what have we got next? Robert Pielli Jr. What would it take for you guys to do more than one week in Sports Cars podcast a week? <coughs> we get two, three, four IndyCar podcasts from MP a week. Let's be fair now. It does come down to availability of time. There's but some weeks where I'd be perfectly happy to do more than one. Right now, the the issue is we're just coming into the new season. Um, travel arrangements and the physics of travelling right now are massively time-consuming. Once you're there, there's a lot to do. There's a whole lot of new at the moment. Um, as I hope anybody that's tuning in will hear, and we've got brand new equipment uh, to deal with and to play with. That brings some in, uh, some improvements in quality, but it also means that we need to test it and rehearse it more. Uh, so it is a physical lack of time. Very often for me, 
And also the other thing to remember is that Marshall and I are on completely different time zones. So our window of opportunity for recording Twisk is pretty narrow. And as we found over the last couple of weeks, as I say, with my commitments with two of my uh, kind of principal clients, obviously Nimp Broadcasting for LMS and for WC this season, and with his commitments to family, uh, which are vitally important, uh, then we have struggled to, to find that kind of two-hour um, gap that allows us to uh, put aside other commitments and, and do this. But, uh, yeah, we will try to do better. Let's have a look here. Uh, the final two questions come into our fun category, and it's Gregosh again. First of all, he says, happy birthday to Greg. Thank you very much indeed. Turned 57 years old last year, last year, last week. Um, who might replace Felipe Albuquerque and Renga van der Zander at Portimao? I think that's with a clash with him, sir. Could it be Kyle Larmy? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, let's make our minds up when we actually find out when, when and where we've got races. But there will be no shortage of people, I'm sure, waiting for the call uh, from the relative kind of team bosses for, in this case, uh, it is United Autosports and Renga van der Zander, of course, at Inter Europol. Uh, we'll wait and see who is on that list. There will be some, there's some big names, uh, going to be landing in LMP2 in the coming, uh, weeks and months. I'm aware of one announcement still to come with a spectacular squad that can be put together, um, very near future in a team that most of us know well. Um, and the final question comes from Lance Snyder. Lance, it's another one on hydrogen. Uh, he says it's a me personally, hashtag me personally suggestion for the hydrogen class name. LMD 1008. 1.008 is the standard conventional weight for hydrogen, so it fits. That's exactly what it's going to be, Lance. There's no doubt about it. You've nailed it right there, son. Um, jobs are good. Look out in the next week or so for significantly more information about the hydrogen class to come than you've read anywhere else from myself and from a colleague. Um, we're working on something and uh, we've nailed a bit of information that we don't think is out there elsewhere yet. For now, thanks for your patience with this being a somewhat monotone, monovoice uh, week in sports cars. I'm going to say thank you very much for so many questions again at such short notice. I'll be going back into self-isolation, which means I'll be at home, which means that I'm a not a moving target for the next couple of weeks. So hopefully we can bring back uh, the regular format for next week's Week in Sports Cards. For now, I've been Graham Goodwin. Thanks again to Cooper Tyres. Thanks again to DrondeMotorsports.com and to the Justice Brothers. Stick with us through what's going to be an exciting uh, era in sports car racing. No shortage of controversy in the early hours of this season, have there? Um, this has been the Week in Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pro Podcast. MP will be back with me next week. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>